My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. There's been a boom in M&A this October. Coming up, we have J.P. Morgan's head of North American M&A on to explain. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello and welcome to the Money Beat podcast. I'm Stephen Grosser. Paul Vigna is off today for Halloween, but we have Dave Benoit joining us in the studio. Happy Halloween. And if you haven't noticed, there have been a few deals. Our deal team has been very active, and we're very lucky. Joining us today is J.P. Morgan's head of North American M&A, Anu Iyengar, to you know, help break down why we're seeing such a surge in M&A, an unprecedented surge in M&A. And, you know, right before our presidential election, which is a little bit odd, you usually see the corporate, uh, you know, CEOs take sort of a, a, you know, um, hold back on M&A at this time of year. Um, Thank you for joining us, Anu. Happy to be here and look forward to chatting with you. I guess we'll just jump right in. Why have we seen, you know, a surge in M&A activity this October so close to the presidential election? For, for us, it's been a beautiful time in M&A, and we love October 2016. <laughs> um, in, and, for, and for a while, we've kind of seen both from uh, the investor community as well as corporate clients that people were looking through the elections and were not really holding back on taking decisions one way or the other, uh, waiting, to figure out, uh, waiting to figure out what the elections are. So that part does not uh, surprise us at all. On, on, the, on your other question of what is generally driving M&A, the drivers are not really very different from what we have seen um, throughout the year. And it's interesting that all the volume that we've seen in October really comes across multiple different sectors, right? We've seen deals in media telecom, consumer products, technology, real estate, oil and gas. So it's not all in one sector. It's pretty broad. Uh, it's very different, interesting types of deals, including a structured deal that you saw today, a take private that you saw today, a yep. strategic merger that you saw today. So the uh, structures that people are using, the type of deals, the sectors are all very diverse, which for, for an M&A practitioner is just lovely. Um, so, 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 so we are we are very happy, and uh, as uh, as we see, deals usually beget deals. So, I think having um, deals happen in each of these sectors kind of makes other players in each of these sectors think about think about what what they should be doing. Because in every sector, the issue is somewhat the same: is where do you go for growth, yeah. and where do you find growth uh, for for Many years after the financial crisis, uh, companies were focused on finding that through cost efficiencies, uh, and then you looked to some higher growth markets. But right now, for most companies, most large companies, M&A offers the best possible growth avenue that they can deliver to their shareholders. Sure. So can, can we let's stick let's stick on this this election and sort of political realm because I'm kind of interested. One of the things that I think has surprised us a little bit is both both the election is is I don't know a, a toss up to a lot of people, but uh, 
also, it seems like there's a lot of sort of antitrust concern out there that, you know, we've seen some big deals shot down this year. Um, it was a record year for withdrawn deals. Withdrawn deals. And, and, and what we're talking about happening in October is, is pretty big deals. And, and some of them immediately drawing kind of uh, fire from both sides of the aisle, maybe the only thing uniting Washington. Um, what's, what's kind of the environment for your clients? What are they talking about in terms of, like, are they not worried about the kind of what's going on in Washington? I'm still correct in that there's been a meaningful amount of um, withdrawn deals or deals that did not go through. So as, as far as um, some public sources, there's about $770 billion of deals that did not go through. And some of these were just regular traditional reasons as to why deals didn't go through, which is a buyer makes an approach and the seller doesn't like the price and they simply say no. And there's also been um, a decent number of deals which did not go through either because of some regulation change related to Treasury regulations or um, failed antitrust approval process. So that is certainly a topic that comes up in board discussions because you don't want to announce a deal and not have it closed. So, of course, that is a factor that boards talk about and factor uh, that risk in as they are making decisions. And that continues. So every one of those deals, the boards that announced them um, must believe that uh, these deals can get, uh, that these deals can get approved. And the driver for growth finally is, is still the driver. So you risk adjust whatever it is that you're doing, but you are looking for growth, and you don't have very many other avenues. And these type of strategic combinations afford to you this avenue for growth. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things we've seen, I mean, it's not just this year, it's been since 2015, is companies doing the, you know, the sort of horizontal deals where they're, they're trying to expand their market share. And though, I mean, and clearly those are the deals that are going to be draw the most antitrust sort of scrutiny. Uh, is is it just because we're sort of stuck in this one to two percent growth? I mean, um, in the U.S. and just slow growth globally, the companies really they've stretched their margins far enough. This is really it. Um, you know, M and A is where they have to go and grab to grab market share. That, that's that's a that's a lot of it. There's also in some sectors where you're facing headwinds, and it may be better to face those headwinds either in a private context um, uh, like the team health uh, deal today or sometimes by combining and having bigger scale uh, like the Baker Hughes GE combination today where you're able to better face what is happening in your sector as a result of doing the M&A transaction. But sometimes it is more to create some growth opportunities like the AT&T deal we saw last week, which combined content and distribution, or the H&A Hilton deal that you saw, which was to take advantage of the China tourism trend. So sometimes it's defensive, sometimes it's offensive, and the drivers of these deals are have been a good mix. So, so you said earlier, right? The the old saying, "Deals beget more 
deals are you are you expecting uh november and december to be kind of as busy we've seen we've seen sort of some some big year ends in the recent years is that is that something you think is uh on the table for this year yeah, I think my comment was more related to there are others who start thinking about it, and if you are doing it in reaction to a deal announcement that you saw in October, sometimes the timing for when you actually get it done is going to be longer than a month or two. Sure. Uh, but to the extent people have already been having conversations, uh, that that is different. But the reactionary deals, uh, probably this will give them more of an uh, driver to start talking about it and focusing on it and more courage really to act on it um, and also in some ways if you are in a consolidating sector where some of the others are doing deals and if you don't you may also get left behind so I think those type of serious conversations about what is happening in our sector how has the landscape changed how have the competitive dynamics changed and how should we think about being best positioned for the future, sometimes the answer may be M&A, sometimes it may, it may not be. Uh, but all the boards and the sectors where deals have happened will certainly talk about it and think about it real hard. Is there any, do you think there are any sectors that we can sort of coming up, we're going to see um, a significant increase in M&A? I know last year, healthcare obviously dominated along with tech, and tech has continued to dominate us, and specifically semiconductors. Yeah, you've seen activity in um, several uh, several parts of tech this year. You've also seen deals in the software space, and I think technology is also a sector where there's a, there's a lot of global interest in U.S. assets. So uh, that sector, we continue to see activity. I think in media telecom, you'll see a lot of activity as well, likewise in real estate and uh, energy. Um, again, for for different reasons, sometimes offensive and sometimes defensive. What, what about um? What about fig deals? I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you do a, a fair amount of those. We've seen a little bit of a tick up. I think everyone, Steve and I, probably the last few years, have been talking about the great bank merger wave that has <laughs> never materialized. But uh, what do you, what do you think about what's going on in that sector? So we we look at fig and all the different uh, pieces and the insurance. Uh, and asset management have both been very active within the financial institution space. Uh, but banks, as you correct, correctly point out, has been one of the spaces where there's been a lot less uh, activity. And uh, most of the banks are still in the process of figuring out all the regulatory requirements and uh, meeting the compliance requirements. And so in that, uh, in, in the bank space, while from one perspective you may look at it and say the need for consolidation is uh, is pretty strong, there are also a lot of uh, lot of hurdles that you've got to cross in order to get there, and to also make the math work in bank deals some oftentimes is a bit harder because of the return on equity thresholds and the earned back time period. Um, there is both a financial threshold that you have to cross that is pretty hard, as well as operational synergies and realization of the synergies and the confidence level and realization of the synergies, plus getting the regulatory approvals. So in banks M&A, as you correctly point out, things have been uh, slower than what was maybe expected 
uh, 12 months ago. I think that's a good place to take a break. We'll be right back after this message. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Money Bee Podcast. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast, um, or follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast, and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on Google Play Music app on your Android devices. We're here with David Benoit and Anu Ayangar, who's the head of North America M&A for JP Morgan. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Anu. Uh, one of the questions you know we've sort of gotten into is is earlier was why now and I know you know when M and A sort of happens from our standpoint it sort of it can oftentimes feel like you know a sort of bolt of lightning all of a sudden it strikes but for you guys you you've oftentimes been working on the deal for you know sort of several months was. Part of the, the clear up from all the volatility we saw earlier in the year and that the CEOs got a little bit more comfortable with where the, um, the economy was going and that we weren't about, the, you know, the U.S. economy wasn't going to fall into a recession? Um, there, there may be elements of that, but it's really also the, as opposed to the drivers of M&A, what at least I think of as the facilitators of M&A. And we've had a lot of facilitators. We've had um, debt financing that has been available for large transactions uh, in at very attractive terms, making the financial results of these deals um, much more attractive than it would be in a different interest rate scenario. We've had very favorable equity markets, uh, several runs, uh, several year runs of the equity markets being high year over year, and boards and management teams feeling very confident about the currency when they are using it in uh, an acquisition. We've also had the facilitator in terms of the markets liking many of these deals or shareholders uh, putting pressure on companies either for growth sometimes or in some cases shareholders putting pressure on companies to actually run sale processes. So we've had a lot of external facilitators in the form of markets as well as shareholders being vocal in terms of what it is that uh, they are looking for. And that trend has uh, has been going on for a while as well. And in some ways, you are seeing all the deals get announced in the second half of October. Some of these came together quickly, but many of them have been brewing for a long period of time. Are are any of those characteristics you just listed, I mean, there's lots of talk of oh, is the stock market you know bubbly? Is it gonna is it gonna fall? Or are, are, are is you know corporate corporate bonds too high? If is there a, a chance that if any one of those things sort of falls off the map, that that this dries up or kind of you you kind of got a flavor of that I think in um, the middle of the first quarter 
when you had some challenging debt and equity markets, and that did impact uh, M&A. So while it doesn't sure. impact it forever, I think it does impact the timing of it. Because for most of these deals, the strategic rationale, uh, the driver for the deal, the operational and financial benefits of the consolidation, those are not uh, short-term trends. Those are trends that are, that are real. But the facilitators being available is very important. And if those markets dry up or get choked up for periods of time, that'll, uh, that'll certainly have an impact in terms of the timing of the deals. Uh, uncertainty is never a good thing for M&A. And having, um, having high movements up and down in markets is, right. uh, is also not good when boards are making decisions. So the facilitators and those markets, the debt and equity markets being stable, and helpful to M&A is an important ingredient for making these deals happen. We, we the other thing I wanted to ask you about about the markets is we had a we had a story last week about um, how how the ARB spreads on some of these deals has kind of widened recently, and it seems almost like the uh, the prototypical ARB trader isn't necessarily kind of piling into these deals as as often. You mentioned obviously there there has been a trend recently where where right the buyer stock kind of pops on a deal which. Certainly makes it more attractive to go do a deal. Are, are is there any talk or, or any kind of concern about what's going on with kind of that that trader market in terms of uh, deals right now for you guys? I think for uh, the companies who are pursuing M and A, having their long term shareholders stay in the stock and the shares not moving into our hands is generally a good thing. That, that's probably and a good then, answer. <laughs> because they, you know, they, they want people who know their company, who know the story, who believe in that story to be holders of the stock. Uh, so I think generally for, the, for these announced deals, um, that's, that's a good trend. And uh, you're right, we've noticed the same thing, that in some of these, uh, ARBs don't want to jump in and play. And, and that's fine. We've seen sort of a number, you know, you pointed this out earlier, you know, across pretty much every uh, or a lot of industries. Um, this October, we've seen private equity deals. I mean, is there any kind of trends um, that you sort of see going on that we can, you know, that might uh, continue on into the next couple of months or next year? You know, with private equity and or maybe what I may say is with just, a wide set of sources of capital. That has really uh, been a very interesting trend in the M&A market. You have a lot of the sovereign wealth funds, the very large sovereign wealth funds, the Canadian pension funds, uh, who many of them historically, the way they participated in an M&A market was through the private equity firms, whereas now many of them participate in deals directly either as a minority investor, sometimes as a facilitator for M&A, or sometimes alongside another private equity firm. We also have several family offices which are growing larger, as well as today have professional management. Private equity firms have, some of them have new funds which are more longer dated, are open to taking minority investment positions, 
So in some ways, you are seeing a convergence of different sources of capital and the areas in which each of them play. So people are no longer sitting in kind of very well-defined boxes and are moving into each other's territories, maybe. As a result, for M&A, it's been a good thing because you have all these different pockets of capital that you can tap into sometimes to facilitate a deal, sometimes as an anchor position to give others confidence in a deal, as a temporary source of capital, as a permanent source of capital. So it's been a really interesting time to see all these private equity funds, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, family offices, all of whom have enormous amount of capital to deploy being non-traditional and innovative in how they are putting the capital to work. Last week, we wrote a story kind of cheekily titled, The Barbarians and the Raiders are kind of uh, meshing together um, on that topic. I don't right? know about barbarians <laughs> and raiders. <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that actually does bring me to a question about my favorite topic, which is activism. Um, and I'm just kind of curious what what you guys see out there in terms of how how the how the activists are playing in that right we have seen some examples of of activism like willing to take companies private but also like in today's rash of deals you know we had we had jan on the board of team health kind of pushing a sale there and some other activists um there are activists on both sides of ge and baker hughes um it, okay. it's, it's sort of an interesting uh time for for activism i'm just curious what, what you think that's doing with the m&a market yeah, and David, you you know you've been following um, that space for a long long period of time, and I think that activists, in some ways, used to get talked about as just one class, and all of them kind of think the same and act the same and do the same. And today, I think there is a lot of differentiation among activists and how they think about even a single particular situation. For sure. You have companies where one activist may be on the board and another activist who is outside may have a totally different view about what is the right answer for that company. So that asset class has uh, evolved and grown, and as a part of that has a breadth and diversity of thinking and opinions, which is different from how that space was five, six years ago. And what that means, I think, for for M&A is that you can't treat that entire class in a single, with a single eyes or a single view, or have what you may quote unquote call an activist strategy, because what uh, works for one shareholder who is an activist may be different from what works with a different shareholder who has a completely different point of view but is equally activist in a different direction. So for companies and boards, what, uh, what our advice is, is to think about all your shareholders, but really focus on the shareholder base who understands your company and who believes in the long-term value creation, which is what boards are tasked to deliver on. And that fundamental approach has not changed but the activism world has certainly changed a lot. Sure, for sure. All right. I, I mean, I think that's a, probably a good place to uh, wrap it up. 
Thank you very much for joining us, Anu. Thank you very much. We'll be back this week. Um, thank you for joining us. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.